Well, thank you to all of you who have um, worked hard to prepare our hearts for this conference. Um, Paul, I thoroughly enjoyed the number you picked for uh, bringing in the sheaves. That was wonderful. I love new renditions of great songs from the past. I uh, was at a missions conference last October that was one of the best uh, conferences I've ever participated in. It was one long day, eight hours, ten speakers, 300 men and women from the business world who attended. And it was organized by a couple named Paul and Kim Halsey, whom you know. Uh, because you have supported them for many years. You uh, have blessed Crossworld by partnering with us in ministry through the Halseys, through the Alexandrescus, through Lori Need. And uh, I want to thank you for doing that as a church. And I bring you greetings from Paul and Kim. I was speaking to Paul this week, and he said, please make sure that you tell Alden Union how much we appreciate their partnership. Paul did an incredible job of that uh, conference. It was a conference that was organized to help people who work and live in the marketplace, uh, which is about 99% of the people in this room today, that they are called to full-time ministry through their jobs. And um, if you don't know uh, Crossworld's uh, vision, I'd encourage you to grab a copy of our book. Uh, it's downstairs in the basement on a table right over about here. Uh, called A Better Way, Making Disciples Wherever Life Happens. And it's all about unleashing the explosive power of making disciples who make disciples and the untapped potential of every believer. We believe that God has called all of you to engage in the harvest, not just here but around the world, and not simply to pray and to pay, but some of you to actually get in the game and take your career cross-culturally to be part of a disciple-making team somewhere where Christ is unknown or little known. Um, our vision is to send disciple-makers from all professions to bring God's love to life in the world's least-reached marketplaces. So I'd love for you to uh, grab a copy of that book and um, find out what God is doing around the world through people like you. And uh, I count it a privilege to be here this week to share with you. This morning, I'm going to talk a little bit higher level about our heart. You see up here, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. I'm going to talk about our hearts this morning. This evening, uh, I trust you'll come back because I'm going to be talking about um, a message I've entitled, Your Two Cents Worth Can Change the World, and how God is actually using some of the things that you and I uh, primarily you in the secular marketplace have already to take to the nations as a means to reach them. Next week, if you uh, are able to be here, I'm going to be speaking on why God loves Mondays. He really does. I think we think Sunday is his favorite day of the week. I'm going to suggest that Monday is his favorite day of the week. And then uh, we'll close out next Sunday evening with a message that uh, challenges us about what happens if we don't respond to God's call in our lives? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for a church that values 
your gospel and that is committed to obeying your command to go into all the world to preach the gospel. And I pray that today and this week and next weekend would be greatly used of you to move us a step further in our journey of being part of taking your precious gospel to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the worth of a human soul? How much is one soul worth? C.H. Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, once said, if there existed only one man or woman who did not love the Savior, and if that person lived among the wilds of Siberia, and if it were necessary that all the millions of believers on the face of the earth should journey there and every one of them plead with him to come to Jesus before he could be converted, it would be well worth all the zeal, labor, and expense. If we had to preach to th- if we had to preach to thousands year after year and never rescued more than one single soul that one soul would be full reward for all our labor for a soul is of countless price So I ask you again what is a person worth to you It's a question which, if we actually had to tell the truth, might be a little bit embarrassing to answer. Listen to the confession of one of Crossworld's workers who works in uh, a limited-access country amongst a very difficult people. He says, probably the thing that ticks me off more than anything else is all the religious people who have no morals here. I get lectured day after day about how my life would be great if I were to become one of them. Of course, this comes from the lips of people that I know are corrupt. For example, the guy that works at the office who I know steals money because I do the finances. Uh, Or the guys at the corner who have just shoved their cell phones in my face to show me the pornography they have on it. And yet they all tell me every day how wrong I am and how I'm a kafir about as derogatory a word as, as they can come up with, meaning an unbeliever, because I don't have faith in their prophet who wrote down a book, dictated to him, and on and on he goes, and I'll spare you some of the things that he says about that prophet. True confession. What are people like the ones he describes worth to you? I can tell you what such a person is worth to God because from start to finish, God's word and God's heart beats with a passion for mankind. The problem is sometimes ours doesn't. We have what you might call spiritual arrhythmia. Many of you, I think, know that the human heartbeat is made up of two parts to the beat. The first part of the beat is when the upper chambers, the atrium or the atria, contract, forcing blood from the top of the heart into the bottom chamber, the ventricles. So the, and, and, and they, they kind of function in sync like this. But when they don't function in sync, It's called arrhythmia, and there's a particular kind of arrhythmia called um, ventricular fibrillation, which is particularly dangerous. What happens when you have ventricular fibrillation is instead of your heart beating in sync like this, on the second half of the beat, the heart just kind of quivers like this. And when that happens, blood pressure drops, 
that life-giving oxygen does not get to the cells, and if left untreated, the result is death. In the spiritual realm, it's a little bit the same. When God pumps his love-rich blood into our hearts, and we are out of sync with his heart, what happens is that the vital signs of the church start to drop. That life-giving blood does not get to the world, and if left untreated, death, their death, results. Today I want to talk to you about a man who had spiritual arrhythmia, a man whose heart was totally out of sync with God's. And he didn't care. I think most of us know the man's story quite well. It's the man, uh, the story of a man named Jonah. God commissions this little Hebrew prophet to take his message of judgment to the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, to tell them that in 40 days, if they don't repent, they will all be destroyed. And Jonah refuses. Instead, he hops on a boat going the opposite direction. So God stops him with a great storm and a great fish. And Jonah repents. Sort of. He turns around and his feet start heading in the right direction, but his heart doesn't. I'd like to pick up his story in Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. This is the second time around now for Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then jump down to verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. There's a, a great little word that Uh, God uses in this short four-chapter story of Jonah that I believe he intended to get our attention to show the disconnect between Jonah's head and Jonah's heart, between what he knew here and what God longed for him to know here. The little word, which occurs I think about 11 times in the book, is a word that is translated great, greatly, or exceedingly, depending on your translation. It's used four times to describe Nineveh, which is called a great city. It is used once to refer to the great wind that God hurled on the sea. It's used, it's used twice to, refu- to refer to the great fear that fell on these pagan sailors with respect to Jonah's God. It's used another time to, to describe the great fish that God sent to swallow Jonah. And and in chapter 3, it is used to describe the great repentance of the Ninevites, who we are told repented from the greatest to the least. 
And then the last two times it's used, it's used of Jonah, not in a very flattering way. First of all, of his great displeasure with God. And once of his great pleasure with the creature comforts that God lavished upon him. So we have this great storm that causes great reverence for a God who has such great love for this great city, Nineveh, who bows in great repentance. And then in contrast, we have this this self-centered little man with the mood swings who has great displeasure over a God that he should worship and obey and great pleasure at the things that God gives him as benefits. So what did Jonah know here that God wanted him to know here? There are at least four great things about God that Jonah knew in his head, but that he needed to know in his heart. The first of them is this, that first of all, he knew that God's love is great. He said, I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knew that God loved sinners and that God loved Nineveh. Nineveh, we're told, was a great city. We're told that four times. Two of those times are in chapter 3. The first we see in verse 2 where he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And then again in verse 3, he uses it again. But it wasn't great because of the size of the city. For in verse 3, if you have, a, if you have any notes in your margin, you might notice that the literal translation of that particular phrase in verse 3 is now Nineveh was a great city to God. You see, God doesn't mention four times how great this city is because he wanted to impress Jonah or us of the size of the city. He mentions it because he wanted Jonah and us to see the size of his heart. Nineveh was a great city because it was a great city to God. God loved the Ninevites. Jonah knew that God loved sinful people and had a history of showing them grace. He knew that he is a God who is willing to avert his wrath from the very worst sinner the moment that person turns and repents. God says, for example, through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And then he answers his own question. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. Jonah knew that that's what his God was like. And he didn't particularly like that about him. You know, there is not a single person on this earth who God would rather see in hell than in heaven. You know, he sees that little girl, that little 12-year-old girl in Bangkok, Thailand, who before the day is over will have been sold to a dozen different men to satisfy their perverse sexual desires. And God's heart breaks as he pumps that life-giving blood into the heart of his arrhythmic church, longing for us to care about the things that he cares about. 
Now, I get that. But what I really don't get is that His love is so immeasurably and incomprehensibly great that His heart not only breaks for that little 12-year-old girl, but it desperately desires that the perpetrators of such evil would turn from their sin and live. And I just wish they would go to hell. But not God. Because God... God's love is great. And Jonah knew that. Secondly, Jonah knew that God's wrath is great. He'd had a taste of it in chapter 1, verse 4, when God hurled a great wind resulting in a great storm that filled seasoned sailors with great fear, causing Jonah to be hurled into the storm and swallowed by a great fish. But he also knew of God's great wrath because he had, God had expressly told him that calamity had been decreed for these people. He had been told to go and preach to Nineveh and say, in 40 days, if you don't repent, you will all be destroyed. And rightly so. If ever a people deserved the wrath of God, it was the people of Nineveh. History tells us how the Assyrians were some of the most brutal people who'd ever existed. They were notorious for it. They would brag about the height of the pyramids they could build using the heads of their decapitated victims. Of how they burned cities and impaled human beings and cut off their hands and peeled their skin off while they were still alive. Modern-day terrorists have nothing over the horrors that the Assyrians perpetrated on the people that they would capture. They were like ISIS on steroids. Jonah knew of God's great wrath on sinners, and it didn't seem to bother him much anymore. In fact, he relished the thought when it came to others. Do you ever think that way, that there are some people in this world who deserve hell? And you're not one of them. I think we all think that. I mean, I was saved as a six-year-old kid. How much can a six-year-old child deserve hell? I was a nice pastor's kid. I went to church all my life. I never drank. I never smoked. I never swore. I was like the model child for a parent. I don't deserve hell, do I? But then I think of the, the people that I read about in the newspaper who 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 slaughter their own people in the name of religion and, and who uh, kill each other in gang fights and who rape their own children. And I think the earth would be better without them. They deserve hell, but me? Not me. And yet I think you know what God says about our sin. For example, in Isaiah chapter 64, he said, all our righteous deeds, so the best that I have to offer him... All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And the word he uses there is actually the word that was used to describe the menstrual rags that a woman would wear. Not a pretty picture. To think that others deserve hell more than me is to seriously underestimate the gravity of my own sin and the gravity of hell itself. Hell is a terrible thing that should rattle us to the core. C.S. Lewis wrote, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this one, 
if it lay in my power. Randy Alcorn said, if we understood hell even the slightest bit, none of us would ever say, go to hell. Hell is the single greatest tragedy in the universe. Not for Jonah, it wasn't. He was hoping it would happen. He knew that God's love was great. He knew that God's wrath was great. And thirdly, he knew that God's word was great. Jonah goes and he preaches a message that should have got him killed. Remember what kind of people these people were. And he goes in and he says, in 40 days you're all going to be toast. And they repented. Their repentance was so great, it said they even put sackcloth on the cows. That's how much they repented. The crazy thing is Jonah wasn't even surprised by that response. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, this is exactly why I didn't go. I was trying to escape. Uh, I was trying to forestall the grace that I knew you would show them when they repented. He actually thought that they would repent at the preaching of God's Word. That's an amazing statement. It is amazing how much Jonah believed in the power of his message. This unwilling messenger goes to an ungodly people with an unpopular message and results in an unbelievable repentance. Why does that surprise us so much? It didn't surprise Jonah. That's what God's Word does when we share it. And maybe that's the problem. Either we don't share it, or maybe we share it with the wrong kind of people. Now, I understand that the whole world needs the gospel, but God actually seems to indicate that good people make for bad soil, but bad people make for really good soil. Listen to who God says responds to the gospel. First of all, bad people. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I didn't come to call people who think they're good. I didn't come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. Bad people respond. Poor people. James 2, listen, my beloved uh, brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Weak and uneducated people respond. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the base and the despised, and so on. Some of the most spiritually responsive people today to the gospel are the people that North Americans despise the most. And I think you know who I'm talking about. Eric is a community health worker in a very dangerous Middle Eastern country. And he reports that they are seeing unprecedented response to the gospel among these people. Let me just share one story that he sent to me. He said, I downed my third cup of bitter tea sitting cross-legged on a too thin red cushion on the floor, talking with a man with the talking to the man with the biggest and blackest beard in the room. A year ago I could only dream of this opportunity. Now here I was, openly talking about spiritual things to the religious leader responsible for all seven villages in the valley, representing about two thousand people who don't know Jesus. I have heard that the holy books have been translated into Arabic, the imam said. Is that true? I responded with a grunt, acknowledging that it was true. 
but continued, Maulawi Saib, respected religious leader. I've even seen God's word in your dialect. With a raised eyebrow, he asked, How can this be? Where can you find these books? Have you looked in the bookshops in the city, I asked, knowing full well that he would never find them there. Many times, was his reply. This is, this is so strange, I answered. I even have a copy of it at home. Could I have it? He asked. I would like to read God's word. It was an earnest question. Knowing that others had been forced out of the country for less than distributing God's word, I told him, um, it's not possible. It's my copy. Now, of course, I desperately wanted the man to know of Christ's love, so I continued, perhaps the next time you're shopping in the city, you could come to my house and we could read it together. He smiled and with a nod showed that that's exactly what he would do. You see, God's heart longs for people like that. to be. To, God, he longs for His Word to be spoken into the hearts of people like that. Modern-day Ninevites, because His Word is still the power of God unto salvation. Jonah knew that God's word was great. Jonah knew that God's love was great. Jonah knew that God's wrath was great. But there's at least one more thing that Jonah knew about the greatness of God, and that is that he came to know that God's grace is great, even and especially toward children who do not share his heart. You know the story, but let me read the conclusion of it in chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Strange ending to a book. Is it not unbelievable that a man who knew what Jonah knew and was disciplined by God to within an inch of his life, could turn around, grudgingly do what he had been asked to do, and then lash out at God with the kind of invective that we read in this story. It's unbelievable. Imagine a servant of God actually articulating that he doesn't love sinners the ones that God himself loves. Imagine a servant of God putting into words that he doesn't particularly even like God's character. 
Imagine being asked by Almighty God whether or not you have a right to be angry over a loss of creature comforts in light of the plight of hundreds of thousands of people and responding, as a matter of fact, I do. I am sick of this sorry mess. I am sick of people. I'm sick of doing what you told me to do. Why don't you just kill me? And all God says in reply is, but Jonah, what about the children? 120,000 of them who don't know the difference between their right and left hand. Or at least the cows. And with that it ends. Strangest ending of any book I've ever read. If I had been God, Jonah would have been toast. <laughs> Lucky for you and for me, I'm not God. God's love and grace toward you. I'm talking to you now. I'm not talking to Ninevites because that's who God was talking to here. God's love and grace toward you and towards me is so great that He can take anything you want to throw at Him and continue to dish out love and grace. I don't know how you're feeling about Him today, if you're really honest, or about how you're feeling about His heart, and about how much your heart is in sync with his heart. But I can tell you how he's feeling about you. He is hopelessly in love with you. You are of infinite worth to him because you are his masterpiece. There was an article in the newspaper a few years back that was entitled, Fingerprint Points to Da Vinci Portrait. The previously unknown portrait, which was entitled Young Girl in Profile in Renaissance Dress, had been sold at a Christie's auction back in 1998 for $19,000. It was resold again in 2007 for about the same price, $19,000, to Canadian art collector Peter Silverman. But when he bought it, he thought that there might be more to the painting than people realized, and so he sent it off to a laboratory in Paris to examine it. In the process, they discovered a fingerprint that was deemed highly comparable to one found on a da Vinci painting called St. Jerome. They did a little more study, and in the end, they verified that this particular painting was, in fact, a genuine da Vinci, and that $19,000 painting suddenly was valued at $150 million dollars. What made the difference? One fingerprint. Not the painting, but the painter. Not the portrait, but the print. The reason that I say you are of inestimable value to God is because His prints are all over you. But the story doesn't end there. I read that story one Saturday morning, and I almost flipped the page without reading the story that was right next to it. There it is. 
13-year-old blamed for suicide bombing. 41 killed. I almost didn't read it. I mean, this is another one of these stories. Some 13-year-old kid in Pakistan straps bombs to his body, runs out and charges a military convoy, and blows himself and 41 other people to smithereens. I mean, the world would be better without kids like that, wouldn't it? Even if they are 13 years of age. And then it struck me. God's prints were all over that kid too. And that masterpiece of inestimable value along with 41 other masterpieces were instantaneously blown into eternity. That's the story that should have got my attention. Not the one about the $150 million painting. That is nothing in comparison to that other story. That's the story that should have got my attention, for that was the real story, that a 13-year-old masterpiece who is the object of God's great love chose to throw himself into the cauldron of God's great wrath because perhaps no one had ever gotten to him with God's great word about God's great grace. And that, my friends, is a great tragedy that can only be averted when our hearts beat in sync with his. You know, we can make our feet go in the right direction, but if our hearts don't beat in the right rhythm, our feet won't be going for long. I don't know how wide or how deep is the chasm between your head and your heart, between what you know about and what you care about, but I know that God's love and grace is so great that it's great enough even for you and for me. This week, next weekend, I hope to challenge you about God's heart and about what he has given you to make a difference in a world that still so desperately needs to know that God loved them and wants them to spend eternity with him. Let me pray. Father, we want to worship you today for your great love that embraces the unlovely. We want to worship you, Father, for your great word that saves the ungodly and for your great grace that restores and restores and restores again the unworthy like us. And Father, as much as we struggle with the implications, we also want to worship you for your great wrath that will consume the unrepentant, for we know that you have done everything possible to offer the nations your word and your love and your grace. And we pray that we might do no less. In Jesus' name, amen.